Father in heaven, we are so truly thankful that we can be here in your house in this day. Lord, we're, we're moved by the fellowship that we can experience as we come into this place and by the moving of thy spirit already in the, in the Bible class. Lord, we're, we have so great a privilege that we have this place to gather as a family of faith, and, and we pray that it wouldn't be something we'd take for granted. Pray, Lord, that it would be something that would, would motivate us, that our experiences together and our, our time before your word would encourage us to action and, and motivate us to adjustments in our lives and, and perhaps um, movement in our lives in, in ways that we're not familiar with or that, that seems perhaps sometimes even uncomfortable for us that we could recognize thy spirit's leading as it directs, as you direct us in the path that we should go, and that pray that individually and collectively we could be encouraged and strengthened to take steps in faith. And so, Lord, as we would look into your word this morning, into familiar passages, Lord, we pray that your spirit would speak to us where it's needful and give us direction for this morning. And for it, we'll thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, uh, and starting with, with chapter 2, actually. Mark chapter 2. <clears throat> uh, some of this is going to seem somewhat familiar. Actually, all of it's going to seem very familiar. These are very familiar passages. Um, I think even in the past few months, we've, we've spoken as we've gone through Luke, and we've, I think I even meditated on some verses in Matthew a few weeks back that included some of these stories. But what I was struck by was when we read in Mark, there are, there are interactions or there, there are stories, there are experiences that, in this case, again, we believe it's, it's Peter relaying the, the accounts to John Mark, who then records them for us. But we have these experiences that are made and, and they're not linear, per se, as you would see through, I think Matthew and Luke seem to do a better job, not better job, seem to take a different approach where the, the accounts kind of follow a more linear pattern in experience, whereas Mark is a recalling or recording individual experiences, and some that aren't in the same sequence that you see in the other Gospels. But in chapter 2, we have a bunch of experiences that are made that seem to push back at, let me just call it like religiosity, or, or preconceived expectations of what faith looks like, or what being a good Jew looked like, or what, what being a good, faithful, religious person meant. And in almost every occasion, there is some kind of principle that it's, that's turned on its head. And so with this, that as a background, um, I think I'd like to go and we'll, we'll read. You know what, I think I'm going to start and stop. We won't read everything consecutively. We'll, we'll, we'll start and stop along the way. So starting with verse 1 of chapter 2 in Mark. And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many gathered together, and insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto the home, unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they laid down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, 
He said unto one, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in the spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it's easier to say to the sick of palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith this unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto you, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. And pause with verse 12 for a second. I won't belabor this. We've, we've looked at this passage a number of times in the last couple of months, and, and I think a lot of it from my perspective, and I know in our house, and Ethan's can uh, confirm this, that we've watched The, the Chosen. And I promise this is not going to be me doubling down on The Chosen again, but this is one passage and one part of that, that series that, that gives us maybe a better appreciation for what this was like and what it was like for Jesus to be inside this house. Um, people are following him in, in a great number now. There are people that want to just get, get close by to him. He's a spectacle. There's all kinds of uh, miracles that are taking place. And if Jesus shows up, you're bound to have a good show. It's, it wouldn't be uncommon. It wouldn't be any different, I think, today if there was some famous person comes to give a lecture, comes to give a speech. I mean, I, I like, this is, uh, this is a terrible parallel, but it just popped into my head. When, when a great comic shows up and, and they announce that a, a great comedian is coming to town, they sell out quickly. When a great musical artist says they're coming to town, they sell out really quickly. Jesus was selling out everywhere he went, very quickly. And in this case, he's in somebody's house. He's standing there and, and, and teaching the people. And we, we've talked about this. But imagine what it's like to all of a sudden somebody starts chopping through the roof. So Jesus has to start talking louder because the chopping has to be pretty noisy. This is not, you know, it's not like they're cutting through this roof. But even if they were, there'd be debris falling down. There'd be all kinds of just strange things happening. And to the point where he probably has to pause for a moment and stand back, and all of a sudden this lame man is laid down through on four ropes, dropped down through the middle of the room. And I don't think we appreciate what this would have meant either as to who this guy was. Because at the time, if you were sick, society had taught you and society had taught everybody else that if you were sick, this malady, this burden, this disease, this whatever that you had was God's punishment on you or on your family for sin. You got this because you did something wrong. We know that's the case because in other spots it says, well, who, who, um, who sinned that this man was born, was it blind? I think it was the blind man. Who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And we, we look at that. I will say, I look at that. I sat around a bonfire last night with some good friends and we made the comments, you know, why are things like this? Why is that family like this? Why is that demographic like that? 
You know, and, and we lean on the fact that, well, they must have done something wrong. There was some cons- this is the consequence of someone's actions. And so Jesus has this man laid before him who everybody in the room is going, this man is a sinner. This man did something to, to have this um, befall him. And Jesus, recognizing that that's what, what everybody's thinking, says to this man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But it doesn't say that the man started to move yet. Jesus says, thy sons, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And immediately he perceives, he perceives that these religious leaders, and I'm going to guess it's not just the religious leaders because we know that the leaders had taught all the rest of society this, that everybody in the room is going, why can he say this? How, how is he able to forgive sins? He says, he began to per- reason, he perceived, wrong page, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it's easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or, I'll add, just to say, arise, take up thy bed and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus looks at this man and says, listen, it's nothing. Why, why are you so surprised that, it's, that I say your sins are forgiven you? It would have been just as easy for me to say, son, arise, take up your bed and walk. And you know, just for, the, for, just for confirmation of that, and in case you thought there was any question, he then looks at the sick of the palsy, the man that's handicapped there, and says, son, arise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately at that point, the young man takes up his bed and walks and goes on his way. And they marvel and say, we never saw it on this fashion. Jesus uses a phrase referring to himself as the Son of Man. You know, any, any other time, I, I think I, I did find where it is. If you ever want to look, in Daniel 7.13 is where we see this reference that the Messiah is referred to as the Son of Man. But this reference to the Son of Man was the, was the perfect apolitical and non-nationalistic description for the Messiah. It didn't have any connection in that passage as to redeeming Israel from their persecutors or from their occupiers, but it was to forgive sins and it was to be the redeemer and the judge, the, the executor of judgment at the last day. And so the, just imagine what these folks are trying to, to, to rectify in their minds, that Jesus walks into the room and tells this man, who they assume is a sinner, son, your sins be forgiven you, and he just stays there. And then Jesus points out the hypocrisy in their thought process and says, well, it wouldn't, wouldn't it, it's just as easy for me as the one who is going to give the forgiveness. It's just as easy for me to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. And if that wasn't enough for me to say it, let me prove it and look at you and say, son, arise, take up your bed and walk. And he does. And everybody has to marvel. He didn't come, and he, he wasn't standing there saying that I'm going to redeem Israel. I'm going to save the world. He, he was trying to take a specific piece of their fundamental belief and explain how they had contorted it. Explain how he was fulfilling now what they thought they knew. 
We'll touch on this a little more, but let's, let's keep going. It says in verse 13, And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And, he passed, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, in his house, that being Matthew's house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eat with the publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with disciples or with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's stop with this one for a little bit. So we, I think we recall the story of Zacchaeus better because we, well, I know why we recall it better because Zacchaeus gave us a little song. I mean, he didn't give us the song, but somebody gave us the song about Zacchaeus. And we know this tax collector, this wee little man that wanted to climb up into the tree to see Jesus. And, but the Matthew story is just as remarkable. I don't think I appreciated how, how bad a guy Matthew would have been perceived to be. I don't know how, how bad Matthew actually was, but I don't, maybe... So tax collectors in the Roman Empire, they were in... In Israel, they would have typically been Israelites. So these folks automatically, by volunteering and, and approaching the Romans to take this position, were automatically, inherently traitors. But do you ever know how they got the job? This really struck me. I mean, this is capitalism at its finest. You, you bid on a tax collector's position. So in Capernaum, big city, this would have been a desirable place to be. Tax collectors came with the authority of the Roman government. They were going to have the support to enforce whatever um, collecting they were doing. But the rate of, of, um, of taxes was not set. Or excuse me, the rate of taxes was set. But the tax collector would bid and say, you know what, in Capernaum, I think I can make, and I'm just going to throw in them, I think I can make, Half a million bucks a year. I'm just going to throw that number out there. Now, the tax that they actually had to collect was something less than that. But they were going to pay the Romans to have that location. It's like, uh, let's go more practical, streetcar vendors. If you have a streetcar or a, a, a food truck, you have to bid on locations to have a food truck. In Syracuse, it's always great to have a food truck, or it was, I don't know if it still is, was great to have a food truck in front of AXA Towers. There's the hot dog guy that was always at the bottom of, at the foot of AXA because he knew that everybody coming out of there was going to want a hot dog at lunchtime. There's another place uh, just on the other side of town by the um, Berkeley, Berkeley Damon. There's, it's a sandwich truck, and that lady is there every morning, and I know she bids for that spot. She pays the city of Syracuse, or they pay the city of Syracuse for the hot dog stand, such and such an amount of money because they want that location. Matthew paid so and so much money because he wanted this location because he, he, he knew he could fleece his brothers and sisters to get enough money to make a profit off of them. And he did that 
by making sure he picked up every nickel, dime, pence, whatever other money they were dealing with, shillings, and I don't remember what they should be, denarii, that he could squeeze out of them, and that was his profit. And it would have yielded him a successful man. It would have yielded him a, a nice house. But it also would have yielded him the scorn of all the people around him. We don't like the tax man. I don't even like my accountant because he helps me give the tax man everything he's supposed to get. So uh, Matthew's friends would have been the other publicans. They would have been the other shady folks. But we know that Matthew was prepared to follow Jesus. The show shows maybe how that happened. But we know that Matthew was prepared because when Jesus walked by his booth, because imagine, this is like a ticket counter booth. This is like going to a show or the fair or whatever, and you've got somebody behind the glass with the little microphone thing, and there's Matthew sitting in his fancy garments saying, okay, well, you owe me this and this and this. And the guy comes to the door and says, well, I only have so much. Well, then there's two Roman guards on the other sides of the booth that say, well, we're going to break your knees or your legs or we're going to take your kid until we can get this money back. How much do you think they enjoyed Matthew? How, how, how approachable do you think Matthew was? But as he sits at the receipt of custom behind this little glass screen, well, it's probably not glass, probably chain link, Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. And immediately he drops the bag of change he abandons the soldiers around him and he follows Jesus. And not only that, doesn't just fall in line as one of the disciples, but then hosts a party at his house, hosts a, a gathering at his house with all of these other traitors, outcasts. But we, we say outcasts, but like super loaded outcasts, like the best dressed, the most successful. This party was at the nicest house in town. And Jesus goes there when all the other folks that are around, all the scribes, the Pharisees, all of these, these other folks would have been just horrified. Imagine going into the seediest place you can imagine. And that's where Jesus is sitting with these folks. And the disciples, who are probably somewhat uncomfortable being in this place, they've accompanied Jesus. I imagine they might have even been outside going, I am not so sure about this. The disciples are approached by the, the Pharisees, and I say to him, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? Somebody please explain to me how this is okay. Jesus, just like he did a little earlier, this one he didn't even have to perceive. He heard them and says, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. On the surface, such a beautiful statement. But think about what he was saying. So, if you're the Pharisee, you are high and mighty and find your, feel that you are the epitome of righteousness. You are probably associating yourself with the righteous piece of this, going, well, I didn't come. So, so you're saying you didn't come to save me, you just came to save these, these sinners. So I could see the Pharisees walking off going, well, this doesn't really re reflect on me. This doesn't affect me or this, this isn't something I should worry about. But then you're, you're the publicans. You're Matthew and his friends. Matthew we know is already following, but the rest of this group isn't following. And Jesus points out to them that they're sinners. 
They're going to automatically assume that he's associating them with the sinner side of this, the non-righteous side of this, and saying that I didn't come for perfection. I came to save that which was lost. I came to bring sinners to repentance. The compassion that that shows, the, the expectation in that culture and in that time was not that sinners would be saved. It would be that they would make themselves righteous so that they could be saved. There was no avenue for a sinful person to just receive pardon. It didn't happen that way. That sinful person had to change their ways, had to go through all the cleansings, they had to obey all these laws, they had to do all of these things that were impossible, and then come to the temple, have a cleansing, allow there to be a sacrifice made by the priest, and at that point they could be accounted worthy to come and to, to serve and to be called a child of God or to be even associated with the religiosity at the time. Let's keep going. He, there's more. In verse 18, And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they came and said unto him, Why do your disciples, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples do not fast? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they fast, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and they shall fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rest is made worse. No man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled out, and the bottles will be marred. But the new wine must be put in new bottles." I'll stop there for a second. So this is one that I read on the surface and it would be easy to say Jesus was giving them a description of how we can abolish all things from the law. We can abolish all the things that we've learned and even as, as, as Jews and even as believers today alike, we can abolish all the things that we've learned if we just follow specifically what Jesus said. Sorry, could you say that? Yeah, can I say that again? That hasn't happened in a while. I mean, that's, that's, all right, now get your train of thought back. Um, it would be easy to read that, to say that, and to assume that Jesus meant, you don't have to follow any of the things that have come before me. And on the surface and in its purest form, saying that we only needed to follow what Jesus laid out for us would be accurate. But what we have to be careful of is that Jesus came to fulfill all of those things, not to abolish them. So the example being, he says, can the children of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom comes in with them? The description was that the Pharisees and the Pharisees, let me put it this way, the disciples of John would fast. The assumption is that they'd fast like two days a week because that's what the Pharisees did. And that was a, a measure of showing their sacrifice to God to put themselves in a prayerful spirit where they could fo focus on Him. Jesus' disciples didn't do that. Jesus' disciples, by virtue of what He says here, it almost sounds like He says, 
we're having too much, we're having, we're too busy, and we're having too much joy to do that. The example that he gives is, can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? If you're at a wedding, would the, would the scribes and Pharisees be required or feel it appropriate to fast while they were at a wedding? While they're rejoicing in the festivities of the bride and bridegroom being there and the union of this wedding, would it make sense, would it be appropriate for there to be fasting taking place? If you were invited to the wedding, there's a wedding happening. There's a wedding in a couple of weeks. A bunch of us are going to go to multiple weddings. Weddings in Ohio, weddings in Michigan. You're invited to the wedding and you come to the table and the parents of the bride and the groom are, are there and they're inviting you to take place or take part in this and you get to the table and you say, no, I'm, I'm sorry. This is a somber time for me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to partake. I'm sorry. And you're in sackcloth and ashes and maybe not to quite to that extent. But it seems illogical. Like it's, it's, not, it's not to be done. It is a time of rejoicing. It's a time of rejoicing. It's a time for celebrating that the bride is here, that the, groom, the bridegroom is here, that he's taking up his bride. And Jesus was explaining that the reverence that was intended by this old, not old, this religious rite or this religious practice that was described, all of the activities that took place in that and, and associated with that were to focus us on the arrival of the bridegroom. Guess what? He's here. Now we need to rejoice. Now we need to be active with him. We need to be watching what he's doing and, and mimicking his, um, his actions and obeying his, his uh, teachings. In the same way, he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away, and that'll be a time to fast. When the bridegroom is gone, and we are now awaiting his return, then there will be the time that we focus upon the things that we've learned and can seek closer communion with, in our case, the Holy Spirit. He's alluding to what is coming. But then just in case they think that it's something that you're supposed to fall back on, to do it like you've always done it, he says, no man sews a piece of new cloth into an old garment. Else the new piece that filled up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putting new wine into old bottles, else the new wine does burst the bottles. So use whichever analogy you want. Nobody takes a piece of cloth and, you know, takes this fancy new piece of cloth and sews it in, into an old garment to try to, to fix it. Because it, it's, it'll fall away at the seams and all that you'll be left with is, is the tatters. The easier one to follow is these wine bottles. Okay, they're not bottles like we're expecting in today's vintage, right? These are not glass bottles that will last forever. What they're talking about is nobody's going to take old wine and put it in a new bottle. Nobody's going to put new wine in an old bottle. These were skins. These were skins that would deteriorate over time. And if you had new wine, this is the part that does throw me a little, because I thought wine gets better with age. But look, follow the analogy here that new is better than old. Nobody puts new wine into an old skin because that old skin, as the new wine ferments, is going to burst and all the, the wine's going to fall out. And nobody wants spilled wine. So if you're making new wine, you put it in a new skin so that you can preserve it, so that you can save it, so that it will be able to be um, 
saved and consumed at some later time. The bottles will be marred, but the new wine must be put into new bottles. Now Jesus, okay, we've got our analogy. Is he saying that there has to be some new invention for everything that he's bringing to us? No, what he's trying to describe is that you can't take all of the old religiosity and try to plug it into this new dispensation. Jesus was fulfilling the law. And by default, fulfilling the law is going to mean that there were things that you were doing before that you either don't need to do now or cannot do the same way. The joy that we have to have because our Savior has come. The, 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 the fact that we live in a dispensation where we have the Holy Spirit, we have opportunity to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives as a product of our relationship with Him is something that we should rejoice about every moment of every day. As the alternative, the Jews seek after that thing. Their rejoicing is that they are claimed as, as, as God's children, that they have this promise of a Redeemer, that there is this something in the future that they can press toward to if they're obedient enough, if they're diligent enough, if they're um, religious enough. It's a difference of pressing toward and looking forward to this thing that they may someday attain or that their ancestors may someday be able to partake of and us being able to say, I experience it right here, right now. That, we desire, that He desires to have us have the joy of the Lord in our lives as opposed to just the longing expectation of His presence with us. We keep going. It came to pass that He went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye not heard what David did when he had need and was hungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests, and gave it unto them which were with him. He said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Another story. A story you can read about um, in Samuel. I think it's in 1 Samuel. Where uh, David is coming. He, I think he was being pursued by King Saul at that point, And uh, his men had not had anything to eat for three days or four days, whatever it was, and they come to the temple and they're famished and they ask the high priest, do you have anything that you could share with us? Is there anything that you could, we, we could eat? And the high priest says, well, all I've got is the showbread. All I have is this holy bread. And any good Jew would have said, well, it's better to starve than to eat, than to defile that. But the high priest made exception at that day and pretty much by persuasion of David that they would share that. And when it's recorded here, uh, I, actually I think it might, where, might be back in Samuel where it's recorded, it says that the Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice. That it wasn't, it was not good that they would sacrifice their own health, that they would sacrifice their own um, well-being 
to just starve because they wouldn't defile themselves with this bread. It's still just bread. Yes, it had a purpose. The purpose for it was to be consecrated unto the Lord. But the work that he was doing was there also consecrated to the Lord. And the high priests having the discernment to know that caring for the Lord's anointed at this point was more important than caring for the bits and pieces and details of the religiosity and the law that he was taught to observe. Do you know how crazy some of these laws had gotten? I I just want to read you something. And I'm not throwing stones because I could relate this to things that we sometimes accumulate to ourselves as well. It says, at this time, this is just an observation that I, I read. Rabbis filled Judaism with elaborate rituals related to the Sabbath and observance of other laws. Ancient rabbis taught that on the Sabbath, a man could not carry anything in his right hand or in his left hand, across his chest or on his shoulder. Okay, that's the, that's the you can't do this. Now, mind you, Jesus' disciples had been walking through and rubbed some corn husks so that they could have something to eat. What was okay to do, what was prescribed as acceptable, was that you could carry something with the back of your hand, with your foot, with your elbow, or in your ear, your hair, or the hem of your shirt, or your shoe, or your sandal. Now, I I think this might be something fun a little later for Prince and Ethan to exercise this out in a vestibule and show us how you could carry something in your ear, your hair, the, the edge of your shirt, or your shoe, or your sandal. Or, on the Sabbath, you were forbidden to tie a knot, except, because we have to make sure that we're appropriate, except a woman could tie a knot on her girdle. So, if a bucket of water had to be raised from a well, you could not tie the rope to the bucket, but a woman could tie her girdle to the bucket. So, so the disciples are walking through a field, and they're hungry, and they rub some corn together, and these Pharisees come up to them and say, it's not lawful for this to be done today. If I'm Jesus, I'm probably going to be a little bit sarcastic. Because if there's a bunch of women walking around trying to pull, waters of, pull buckets of water out of the well with the belt that they were wearing on their robe, something's a little amiss. Something's not quite right. But what struck me about all of these examples is they all come back to this fundamental thought about there was this prescription for what it meant to be religious. In today's day and age, nobody wants to be religious. That's like, they should shorten it to four letters because it should be a four-letter word. Nobody wants to be religious. Even I would say even believers and people of faith don't want to be associated with religion. We want to be associated with faith. So use a different word. Nobody wants to be a faithful... In order to be a faithful person, live according to, in our case, the Scripture and the Holy Spirit's direction in our lives. There are always fundamental and institutional, dare I say, things that we associate with how that's supposed to happen. They're the things that we do as a, a product of our upbringing, a product of our teaching, um, and many of those things are accumulated through our lives. 
And I'm always careful to say this. I am not saying that all these things have to be abolished. I don't think there's many things that need to be abolished. I don't think right now I can think of anything that needs to be abolished. But the part that really struck me was, what am I relying on? When somebody asks me, and it's happening more lately, when somebody asks me, what are the things that I need to do to make sure that I'm following Christ? What, what are the fundamental things that I need to do? What's the first thing I need to do to make sure I'm doing God's will and I'm being obedient to my Heavenly Father? My answer can't be as the Pharisees' answer would have been or as religious scholars' list would have been is to pull out this list, this how-do list. It's, it is not... Well, first you do this, then you do that, then you do this. The first thing has to be, listen to the Lord. What is the Holy Spirit telling you is the thing you, you need to do? Listen is the first thing. Are, are you listening? Not to me. I can't tell you what is that specific thing. Just in the same way, Opa uses the, the story that he, he tells that always speaks to me about being at home on Sunday afternoon when he was supposed to have been in church and the Lord spoke to him. He heard a voice audibly call his name, but when he talked to his mom about it later and said, what is it like when God calls you? She didn't have an answer. She couldn't say, well, it's a deep voice and it sounds like this and it said, you know, it's not Moses hearing from the, the, um, from the burning bush. It doesn't always sound that way. I don't know exactly what it's like, but when you know, if God calls you, you will know it, and you'll never be the same. And so our job, our job has to be, as we try to share the word, we're, we, we can't be the voice of God. Hmm. Is that a statement I should have made? I'm not sure. Check that. I don't know if we can be the voice of God, but we should be a mirror. I can be the voice of God if the Scripture inspires you to say this. That's probably a scary thing. The, the minister standing at the pulpit this morning saying, I can't be the voice of God. I can't. But whatever, whatever comes out of this message as the inspiration, the encouragement, the admonition, whatever you take from this morning is God's word to you. Not because I said it, but because he took those passages. There's four things. Was it four different things we looked at this morning? Of those four things, nobody's going to key in on every single one of them. But I pray that we can be receptive to the Lord's leading in our lives to understand what are those things that we need to apply to our lives? What are those adjustments that I need to make to say, you know what, I'm too reliant on my spiritual crutches, my religious crutches, to say when I'm a little uncomfortable in this situation that I'm going to fall back on this crutch because that's what I know instead of lean into, Lord, I don't really understand, but Jesus said I should walk with you. The disciples often would have wanted to lean back onto a crutch. But every time, in all of these things that we read this morning, and this is just one chapter, Jesus took his disciples and pushed them, gathered them, led them into spots that were a little bit uncomfortable from what they experienced before and what they knew. And so I think it should give us encouragement as we step out into experiences, as the Lord leads us to them, that are a little bit different than what we know, 
and a little bit uncomfortable to know that that's probably a confirmation that that's where we're supposed to be. If I'm leaning back into, hey, make sure that you use that belt there to pull the water out of the well, or make sure that you try to, don't flip your hands this way to carry anything on Sunday. Make sure that you try to do it this way. If I'm getting into that kind of minutia, I would venture to guess that Jesus isn't there with me. That the Spirit hasn't put me there to focus on that. But it said, you know what? That place might be a little uncomfortable. That guy has a reputation that is awful. But for some reason, he keeps looking at you through the glass. For some reason, Matthew is looking and wants to follow. He, he just needs somebody to ask him. And I wonder if any of the disciples had the in, not in, intuition or, or had, had any of the inspiration to see when they walked past the glass that Matthew was ready to be invited. Matthew was ready to be offered the opportunity to walk with the Master. And I wonder if they saw it as quickly as Jesus saw it in that moment that Jesus invited them. And maybe I pray that for each of us that we could have eyes and ears and hearts that are keen to that, to recognize that sometimes the Lord is, is making an invitation to those that we wouldn't otherwise expect. And He needs us to be those that come along the side and say, listen, I don't know where this is going and I don't know how this situation is going to, to, um, to move forward or where God is going to take us, but I know He's here right now and that's where He wants me. Pray that we can all have that, have that heart set just a little bit more. May the Lord bless you.